Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 80 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Gregory Maguire, author of the best-selling novel Wicked, which retells the Wizard of Oz from the point of view of Elphaba Throp, the Wicked Witch of the West. A musical adaptation of the story has been the highest-grossing show on Broadway for the past nine years. Maguire also wrote three sequels to Wicked, Son of a Witch, A Lion Among Men, and last year's Out of Oz, which he says will be his last Oz book. We also have a bit of a format change to announce. So John's a lot busier these days than when we first started doing this podcast. He's now married with kids and is editing both Lightspeed and Nightmare magazines, and that's in addition to all the anthologies he does. And it's getting to be more challenging for him to always make time to prep for and record every single segment of every single episode. So I think what we're going to do is experiment with just having me record more of the segments on my own. And we expect John will still be around for most of the panels and many of the interviews, but it'll just depend on his schedule. So, for example, for today's show, we'll be playing an interview that I recorded one-on-one with Gregory Maguire, and then John will be back in the second half of the show for our panel discussion. And the topic for that panel will be Oz in fiction and film. We'll also be discussing my new anthology, Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond, which I co-edited with Douglas Cohen, who will also be joining us for the panel. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Gregory Maguire. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to talk about is that I actually I live in New York, and I saw you in an event years ago at Barnes & Noble in Union Square, where you did a thing where you read sections from the novel Wicked, and then members of the Broadway cast performed the songs that had been adapted from those sections. And I just thought it was one of the best book events I'd ever seen. I was just curious whose idea that was and how that came about. Well, I have to say my publisher, HarperCollins, and the people who make the play uh, the, the, you know, the, the Broadway theater people have worked hand in glove all the way along in order to, uh, make sure that there's as much generosity of spirit about this shared material as they possibly can. It never hurts the play for me to go out and talk about my work. And it certainly never hurts me as a writer to have a $14 million advertising budget behind my book. While I can't remember whose idea it was exactly, I do know that there was no coercion needed. There were no greased palms. Everybody was happy uh, to help out together. And you said something I thought was really funny. If I'm remembering right, you said that when you first went out on tour, one of your friends said, I don't know if I can get the exact quote, but she said something along the lines of, you're not so cute that groupies are going to be a huge problem, but you're cute enough that they might be a slight problem or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. <laughs> that was the writer, Alice Hoffman who said, you know, never, uh, never leave a bookstore with somebody you've just met. <laughs> I didn't want to ask her, why, Alice? Do you have any interesting stories you want to tell me about? I'm all ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, uh, I just said, thank you for your advice. I'm a babe in the woods. I'm a novice. Uh, I'm not stupid, but <laughs> I am a novice. And so she gave me, for protection, a kind of hand puppet of the Wicked Witch of the West. And she said, what you must do if you are going out uh, and you happen to go to a cafe across the street from the bookstore, take this Wicked Witch of the West puppet out, order yourself a bottle of wine, do not drink it, just put the puppet on the bottle of the wa- of wine 
and put the Wicked Witch of the West across from you at the table, and that will scare off all pretenders. That was good advice, except that, of course, the Wicked Witch of the West invites lunatics out of the woodwork. And so it didn't quite work in, in quite the fashion that she had imagined it would. But I did carry that puppet around with me for years and told, and told that story often. And so obviously the Broadway play has been a big success. And I understand there's a feature film in development. Sort of what's the status of that? There is a feature film in very slow development. Uh, I have not heard any updates recently. I, I think I did see over the past summer that there was uh, a director. I think his name is uh, Daltrey. Is it Roger Daltrey or Michael Daltrey, Stephen Daltrey? I forget. Uh, who was considering being attached to the project. But Universal Studios is the main bankroller for the play, and they are still making money on Broadway and on four continents on uh, every night uh, the curtains go up. And so they're not in any big hurry to turn this into a feature film yet. Why kill the goose that's laying the golden eggs? Uh, the eggs are still, you know, a good size. And eventually the movie will come to be, but only, I think, when the play has finally begun, you know, to be completely passe and either needs a little boost or is done and therefore can be reinvented once again. Uh-huh. And the recent sort of Oz is sort of in the news right now. Is there's this new Oz movie coming out called Oz the Great and Powerful. Have you been following that at all? I have seen the trailers for it. I saw the, the truncated one uh, last, uh, last fall, I think, that I liked quite a bit. I saw the expanded one that goes out to a minute, and I wasn't quite as impressed with that one. It began to to look as if it was verging on Tim Burton territory. Uh, nothing wrong with that, except that that's not my personal uh, picture of, of what Oz is like. I mean, how would you say that your take is different from a Tim Burton kind of take on it? Well, Tim Burton's worlds are, are fascinating, and I love them, but they, they curl toward uh, the Baroque and the um, macabre, let's say, even his Alice in Wonderland. My take on Oz is sinister in some ways, but it is no less capable of, of salvation uh, at the same time. Uh, in other words, my world is just as corrupt and just as redeemable as the real world in which we live. At least that's my that's my artist's attempt. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard you say that you, you've said one of the things that you think made Wicked really strike a chord with people is that it's concerned with you know, doing the right thing and being good versus being bad, and that that's kind of become passe almost in literature. I mean, why do you think, what, how do you think we got to this place where questions of, of doing the right thing are not fashionable? Well, one can certainly understand that when the bad becomes so immense, the last 105 years has not been uh, a very noble period for the human race. And so we have some choices just for self-protection. We can choose to ignore the problems, which is the most common way human beings have of separating themselves from the, the pain of fecklessness. Or we can say, we're going to fight as hard as we can, and we're going to lose. Or we can say, 
it's all beyond us. You know, no one person can change uh, the history of the Holocaust. No one person can turn back global warming. No one person can impound all the guns that threaten all the school children and every school in the nation. And so to say that I have the capacity for good is, is to indulge in a kind of hubris that is, that is outsized to my real capacities. So I think we have stepped back from the belief that we could uh, change the milieu in which we live. You've said that one of your goals with writing Wicked was to um, encourage people not to be so hasty to demonize other people. And the book is, I think that you've said it sold millions of copies, I think something like 7 million copies. It's been this big Broadway hit. Have you seen, uh, have you gotten feedback that suggests that that message is sinking in to people who are um, enjoying the story? Well, Yes, I have, mostly from young people who are not scared of saying what they think about something. Uh, we should all be that young. Uh, I'm very pleased that Alphaba, particularly as a character, but the story of Wicked in general has been such as to make people want to write to me and say, I identify with this character of Alphaba uh, because she is going up against it and she knows she has so little chance of success, but she won't give up. And personally, between you and me and anybody else watching this podcast, I identify with her too. I take, uh, I take my own set of uh, courage from the story of Alphaba. I admit it's a bit onanistic to think I can admire and have as a hero somebody I made up from some part of my own brain it's a little bit of a closed system there, isn't it? Uh, but nonetheless, I do. I don't quite say to myself, what would Alphaba do? But in a way, knowing that there's a character like Alphaba out in the world, it doesn't matter that I helped sh shape her. What matters is that I can take an impression from her, her strength and her vivacity. And, uh, and it can make me decide how I'm going to approach my teenage kids when they come home from school today. I mean, do you ever get letters from kids who say, well, there was this green-skinned girl in our class and we used to be mean to her, but having read the book, now we realize we should be nicer to her? No, because every, every letter I get from every kid says, I'm the green-skinned girl. They should be nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> Boys and girls alike. Uh -huh. Well, let's talk about the world of Oz. I think, you know, since this is a show for fantasy and science fiction fans, I think one thing that was really interesting about the way that you approached creating this world of Oz is that you said you actually consulted with a cultural anthropologist to create the societies. Uh, I mean, do you have lessons that are generalizable for fantasy writers uh, in terms of creating those kinds of worlds? I think about this a lot uh, in almost every work that I do, uh, regardless of the audience. If it's an audience of kids who are eight or if it's an audience of adult readers, I try to think, what are the minimum details that I need to supply in order to make this world seem coherent? Now, in a short story, you may only need one or two crispy phrases or uh, surprising iterations of the layout of the world in order to make the whole thing snap into being and, and leap up before the eyes of the reader like a pop-up book. But in a large world, especially a world like Oz, which already existed, I felt I needed to be on the money for every single aspect of the life and culture and history that Oz provided. Of course, L. Frank Baum, 
did not provide a whole lot of that. The history of Oz is very sketchy, and I wanted to deepen it and to enrich it, and I wanted to be able to have some sense of how the entire society had worked and was working and might work in the future, depending on how people behaved. To that end, I made a list of of things that any cultural anthropologist going out in the field might actually consider upon finding a new population. What are the inheritance structures? What are the class divides? How do the people in any particular part of the clan relate to clans outside and to differences within the clan? What is the attitude toward gender? And then what are some of the processes, the marriage processes, the birth processes? What is the relationship of fable and faith in that particular society? The more I delved in, the more I got my hands dirty, the more I felt I could find answers either in myself or in some turning over of the ground that Elf Frank Baum and MGM had left us. Uh-huh. And I mean, but you, had, you did have to make some changes, right, to L. Frank Baum's world. I was just kind of curious, what have been the most uh, p- impassioned reactions from L. Frank Baum purists that you've gotten to changes that you made? Well, the initial response to Wicked from the world at large, the world uh, of literary uh, critics, uh, was generally very good. You know, there was one particular nasty response from the New York Times, uh, but almost all the other reviews were uh, were were quite flattering. <laughs> they were better reviews than I ex- ever expected to get in my life, and I was I was really pleased. Uh, the Oz purists were slower to come on board. I think I I was considered something of a heretic at first um, for the following reasons. I allowed a certain kind of joyful inanity to seep out of Oz. That is to say that while there's cause and effect in the story of Dorothy in Oz, there really is very little cause and effect in Oz without Dorothy there. The populations all throughout Oz that Baum began to embroider and then continued to embroider were all uh, self-contained and and hardly knew or cared about each other, even if their territories were contiguous. Uh, There was very little sense of how they'd come to be there or, or what made them be unique one from another. When Dorothy lands in Munchkinland, you remember, nobody in Munchkinland has ever been to the Emerald City. It's just, it's just hearsay. They're, uh, you know, they're farmers out in the sticks. Uh, so I felt that I needed to explain a little bit about that, about why the populations were so different. And that suggested uh, to me that there was a lot more antagonism among the populations than Dorothy was aware of when she got there. So most of my inventions were based on apprehensions from clues that had been left on the ground by Baum and by MGM. I consider them co-parents, as it were, of the Oz that we all feel that we know. The the, the diehard Oz enthusiasts, the L. Frank Baum clubs, etc., were not all that happy. But I'll tell you this. Uh, I was out in Wichita or in Kansas City or Omaha or someplace on tour for Wicked. And uh, at the end of my reading, when I had talked about the Wicked Witch of the West, and I had made it clear 
that I had no intention to write a Saturday Night Live parody of The Wizard of Oz. I intended to take it all very seriously, as if it were uh, a 19th century moral tale. Uh, at the very end, when I was signing books, a woman came up to me. She was very tall. She had a trench coat and a brim-snapped hat on, and she came to me, and she peered down into my face, and she said, I have a confession to make. I said, yes. She looked this way. She looked bad. She said, I'm from the official International Wizard of Oz Club, and I've come to spy on you and report back to our minions. But I've become a convert. And then she flew for a hat and bought three books and had them all signed for her mother and her husband and her children. Uh, I think that's sort of what happened. It took the Oz people a little bit longer to realize, yes, I was, I was playing around with sacred material, but not in any way to disgrace the original material, just actually to make it seem richer and to make its richness make more sense. Uh-huh. I mean, there's this whole thing about in Wizard of Oz that the, the scarecrow is a symbol for the farmers and the yellow brick road is a symbol for the gold standard and the whole thing is a political allegory. And what do you think about that? And did you do anything similar with your uh, Oz books? I stayed away from using any of those characters as allegorical uh, elements. Uh, I mean, any of those famous characters. And I have come around to thinking um, what I've heard a few other people write, that it's quite possible that the images of the Yellow Brick Road and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man particularly uh, occurred to L. Frank Baum as a result of political cartooning. He was, after all, a newspaper journalist in the years before he wrote The Wizard of Oz. And so he was familiar with how political cartoons were beginning to use uh, symbols like that and characters in order to demonstrate certain segments of the population and their attitudes toward cultural, social, and political historic changes. On the other hand, it's been suggested that the images themselves are so strong that they actually didn't have to mean anything. The cow jumping over the moon doesn't have to mean anything, but boy, there's a cow jumping over the moon. That, that's it in itself. Um, Blake famously said about the tiger, tiger burning bright in his poem, The Tiger, when asked, what does the tiger stand for? He said, the tiger stands for the tiger. And so in a sense, the scarecrow and the tin men stand for who they are in the story. Their origins may have been political, but once Baum started to use them as characters, they shucked off their origins, I do believe. And so I don't believe in, I don't believe that anybody would waste his time writing an allegory about, about uh, the foundations of fiscal policy in a book intended for eight-year-olds. Uh, I mean, you have said that Wicked was sort of inspired by the U.S. involvement in Iraq. Um, were the later books in the series similarly intertwined with contemporary politics, or did it kind of go off on its own after a while? Well, they, they, they were. Uh, Son of a Witch, the second in the series, was the most directly inspired by, uh, by, by contemporary events. And here's where I break with what I said as an answer to the previous question. Uh, the, the book, Son of a Witch, was intended as a response of mine to uh, the second Gulf War and to the um, pictures of people coming out of Abu Ghraib, 
where especially that man who was um, the photograph with the hood and he was on a box and wired up supposedly to electrodes. Those pictures came out and were all over the front page of the Boston Globe. And they were so horrendous that I felt physically sick. And I thought, if I don't write something about somebody making an attempt to, to break someone out of prison, then I'm just going to go bonkers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to sign myself into McLean's uh, down the road and spend the rest of my life there because I find this so offensive, so so horrible to consider. Now, when I came to read the book, uh, Son of a Witch, for an audiobook, Books on Tape, I found to my surprise that the character playing uh, the new ruler of Oz, the new emperor of Oz, had a distinctly Texan twang, which I don't believe he had any right to have. So I suppose I was betraying my own, um, you know, political attitude in my performance of some of the characters once I came to do the book on tape. Um, and I've, I've heard you, you've described yourself as basically a pacifist. And I was just wondering, how hard is it to be a pacifist, given contemporary politics, when there doesn't seem to be much uh, support for, for that kind of idea? I'm, I'm a pacifist by inclination. It's not a religion. I, I would prefer, uh, in almost all instances, for people not to be put in danger. But I'm also uh, raised a Christian, and I have read the, the essay uh, by Thomas Aquinas on the justification for a moral, the moral justifications for a just war. And I know that there are times when one must pick up uh, guns and, and try to uh, right a wrong or to defend yourself. I know that, but I just hope that that's always used as uh, as defense and as a last uh, resort rather than an immediate knee-jerk reaction. It is hard. It's, it's, it's a hard position to hold. And like any position that, that any thinking human being holds, I wobble on it back and forth all day long as well as uh, in any given conversation. Well, and could you talk about how you went down to Nicaragua on sort of a peace mission? Yes. Uh, it was in the late 80s. This was the time of the, um, you know, I think it was right before the Iran-Contra revelations. But there was certainly money uh, coming in, flooding in from the United States to arm one side of, of the struggle, uh, to arm the, the, the right uh, side of the struggle. And by right, I, I mean uh, not the progressive side, not the leftist side, but, but the other direction. Uh, and I knew that there were, because I knew people who lived there, that there was a, a really commendable effort by American citizens who didn't believe in the arming of rebels in another country to want to go to Nicaragua and to stand to link arms with with the peasantry uh, who were who were working illegally elected for the kind of government that they chose as a way of saying that even if the American government is funding these guns, uh, not everybody in America, in the United States, feels the same way. So we're going to come down and just be another voice and another presence and, and stand in, as they say so fetchingly, solidarity 
with the movement. I was very happy to do that. I was very uh, scared to do that, and I've never done it again. But it was a real it was real education, and it was an attempt for me to stand up for what I believed. And you talked about sort of using storytelling to comfort children there. Uh, yes. Well, you've done your research well. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, the fact is that I didn't speak much English. Uh, excuse me. It sounds like I don't speak much English. I didn't speak much Spanish. But I found that I have a little bit of a Pied Piper uh, sort of presence sometimes among children. And I was able, just with the tiniest little bits of toys or sticks or stones and making animal noises, uh, I was almost always able to bring the children uh, together and to uh, to engage with them. I was staying one night in a house that only had one door. It was in the farthest uh, highland place that we were going on this trip. And about nine o'clock at night, the, the lights in the town went off. The entire lights in the whole little mountainside village went off. And one of the Americans said, oh, this, they, they may be cutting the power in order to attack the town at night. Uh, we all better go inside and into our, to our homes. I was staying with a minister whose wife had been killed and had left him with three children. And when the, when the guns went off, the children came and nestled under my arms like little chickadees coming, you know, for safety to a person who didn't have any Spanish and certainly didn't know what to do if somebody burst through the door uh, with a gun. And it just started singing and rocking and making making funny noises. And indeed, there was some sort of uh, some sort of gun episode out in the street outside our house. Uh, nobody was hurt. Eventually, everything was silenced. I never did find out what it was, but I felt that I was able, at least at that moment, to give comfort in the way that I could. Uh, by singing and being a lunatic. <laughs> I mean, actually, speaking of children, I saw that, I, I think it's really interesting that you you said that your parents didn't really let you watch TV and that The Wizard of Oz was basically the only TV that you were allowed to watch. It was almost like Christmas that it was on TV once a year or something and you were allowed to watch it. Well, the story, as you put it out, is is a little extreme. We actually were allowed to watch TV, but not much. We had to vote as a family of seven children which half hour the TV was going to be on every week. We could watch it every week. We just couldn't watch it all that regularly. But yes, you're right. Uh, once a year, my parents relented. They gave up their um, their harshness and their restrictions. And they said, oh, The Wizard of Oz, it's a great family film. Every child should see it. It was part of our annual Festival. It was in the liturgical calendar, really. There was Christmas, there was Easter, there was the Wizard of Oz. Uh, it was a natural holiday of, of terror. Uh, and because of that, I think the story of Oz got into me, I don't say more deeply than it did to other people of my generation who, who didn't live in the video Mesmerama in which children and adults live now. But it certainly did get in deep to me as the first instance of a filmic impression. This was one of the few stories that I got through the movies first and then went back and started uh, trying to find the books afterwards. And then I also saw that your, your father wrote a humor column. Is that right? Did that, what kind of uh, effect did that have on you? 
Yes, he was. I, you would you might say he was a kind of early and localized Garrison Keillor, uh, not with uh, that the kind of extended metaphor with which Garrison Keillor has been working for forty years or so. But he collected funny stories from around town and told them in a, a column that ran four days a week in our local newspaper. He was also a stringer attached to Time and Newsweek and the New York Times to report on uh, any news that was happening out of upstate New York, the Albany area where I was born and where I was raised. So uh, I grew up thinking, oh, I don't think too much of my father. I don't like him. He's a bore. I'm going to do anything than what he does in my life and be a different person than he is. But my whole life, I've been a writer exactly the way he has and the way he was. And incidentally, so too are three of my brother's writers. So uh, despite the fact we thought what he did was not terribly interesting, we must have been raised in that hothouse atmosphere of love for words, love of story, uh, and, and love of sharing whatever it was that was good by writing about it. Uh-huh. I mean, what do you think about that, that um, being raised with such limited access to television, like what kind of effect you have on that? And I know you have kids now, and I can't even imagine trying to limit kids' access to the internet and so on today. I mean, what what do you think of that sort of approach of limiting children's access to media? I think I think it's a lost cause, and I think it's important to lose it. I, that is to say, I think it's important to try, uh, and I think you're going to lose. We, we had um, our children are now 15... 13 and 11. And we won the battle for 10 years in a row from the time they came to us. They're all adopted until they were about uh, 11. And then in the last couple of years, as they've come up into high school and middle school, we've pretty much lost uh, a good part of the battle. They are on screens, you know, an awful lot of the time, but not all the time. I still collect the iPad, the iPod, the phone and the computers uh, every night around 8.30, quarter to nine, and that's it till the next morning. They are supposed to read, and most uh, most of them do. The older one does homework, and the, the younger two read every night. Um, they are not being raised in the world in which I was raised, and I couldn't raise them there even if I wanted, because it doesn't exist anymore. Um, I've had to relax a little bit and say, remind myself they need to be able uh to be functional in the world in which they find themselves, just as I found a way to be functional in my own slightly, uh, slightly limited universe. So I saw on your Facebook page, you said that you went to a symposium on dystopias back in uh, last May. I was just curious, what was that and sort of what kind of things were discussed there? Well, it was uh, run by a group called Children's Literature New England, which is a group I actually helped to, to start about 27 years ago. Uh, that group had as its aim to uh, enliven the mission of, of telling people about the significance of literature in the lives of children. To do that, it, it used to hold week-long conferences once a year at which a stellar band of, of writers and illustrators teachers and librarians would would come together. We had people like Ursula Le Guin and Maurice Sendak, Philip Pullman, Neil Gaiman, just pretty much anybody who was alive and could and could move across the floor uh, accepted our invitations to come and speak. But as 
I have gotten older and have pulled back from doing that kind of organizing work in order to raise my own family. The group, too, has gone through a transition. And last fall, we've been meeting in smaller groups. And we did have a a three-day symposium on dystopian fiction. We read some older material. We talked about um, Tobin Anderson's work. We talked about the um, the Hunger Games work, uh, the names of the, you know, some of the names of the books escape me at the moment. There's a wonderful new anthology uh, by Datlow and Windling called After. I don't know if you've seen that. I have a story in that. And that's a, a whole set of new and original dystopian fiction written for children. Well, you want to tell us about your story from the anthology? Yes. It's called... Um, how the Earth Went Wrong by Hapless Joey at school.gov. And it is six or seven page story that pays a tip of the hat homage to Russell Hoban in his famous and wonderful dystopian novel called Ridley Walker. What most characterized that novel is that in addition to the world being broken, even language was broken. The ordinary laws of grammar had all been forgotten. And in order to read Ridley Walker, pretty much you have to read it out loud the way you find if you read Shakespeare out loud or Chaucer, you actually realize that your ears are hearing things and understanding it and doing just as much of the work as your eyes are doing. You read Ridley Walker and you read it out loud phonetically like a child learning to read. And you remember how Every child learning to read is trying to unriddle the universe. I took that plan and I wrote about a boy who was trying to write an essay about what happened to the world. He sees photographs of what the world used to be like when planes flew through the air and everybody was clean and, and, and lawns were cut and everything seemed to be in bright color. But in the time since he was born, half the world was plunged into shadow. My suggestion as to why that happened is that something has gone wrong with that high-speed particle collider halfway underneath France and Switzerland, and that it generated a particle that began to change the nature of molecules. This was actually built out of a a fear of mine. What is that? I forget the name of it. The Hadron? uh, Yeah, the Large Hadron Collider. Right, right. Uh, people talked about the fact that nobody knew really what was going to happen if if two particles collided and made a third particle that had never existed. Well, I always have to have something to worry about when I go to bed. First, it's whether or not I floss correctly, and then it's whether or not the universe is going to uh, change its nature You know, before I, I get up and brush my teeth. Uh, so that's really where that story began. It was built out of that anxiety. What's, what's sort of your relationship with science fiction? Because I think you're best known for writing fantasy, but I saw you wrote at least one uh, young adult science fiction novel. I don't know if there are others. Just, um, yeah, what is your relationship with science fiction? I read science fiction when I was 14 or 15 in the way that I read everything. So I read my Robert Heinlein, and I read my Isaac Asimov, and I read my Ray Bradbury. Uh, there are some science fiction writers I really do admire uh, a huge amount, Um, There's somebody who writes for teenagers, H.M. Hoover. I think she's dead now. But she wrote with a particular uh, literary style that was very appealing to me. 
I've liked um, some of the work of Doris Lessing, uh, and I have, you know, at the moment, the names escape me. Uh, I, I admire almost everything of Ursula Le Guin's. And you have, uh, I hear you're working on a new novel called Egg and Spoon. You want to tell us about that? Yes, I, it's, it's on the table in the back of uh, in the back of my study here. It is, in in a sense, a little bit of a of a dystopian novel, but it is set in the past. It's set in roughly 1905 in uh, Tsarist Russia, and despite the fact that it's set back then, it's really a meditation on some things that we are facing right now in our dystopian 2013, which is the threat of climate change floods and droughts and weather that won't sit in the month in which it belongs and its implications on human suffering and on human need to begin to find new ways to share resources. I have purposely said it in the past so that it won't be too, uh, too extreme and too science fiction. And that allows me to, you know, dabble in the kinds of things that I like too. But it nonetheless is intended to respond to readers, to young readers, right in the world in which they live, in which we see these storms and we can worry about things like colony collapse of bees and, and about drought and what it's going to mean if, our, if the, our chain of food supply really is as drastically interrupted and revised as seems to be quite uh, possible even within our lifetimes. And what is actually the sort of the plot and the characters and stuff? I'm not going to say too much about that because I haven't shown it to my editor yet. And because it's, while I do have a first draft, 330 pages, I'm only about 30 pages into the second draft. So uh, I think I'll, I think I'll leave it at that with your, um, with your permission. <laughs> sure. Do you have any idea when it will be released into the wild? I would like to think uh, that there is still a while for it to be released in by the time I'm done. And I would like to say probably fall of 2014. All right, great. So Gregory Maguire, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you. I've had a wonderful time. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Gregory Maguire for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, our panel topic today will be The Wizard of Oz in Fiction and Film. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Douglas Cohen who you may remember from our recent panels on Robert E. Howard film adaptations and epic fantasy short fiction. He's the former editor of Realms of Fantasy magazine, and his short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Interzone and Weird Tales. The new anthology Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond, which he co-edited with John, is his first book. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Great to be back. And so I think the first thing we're going to talk about is this new Disney movie that'll be out in a few weeks called Oz the Great and Powerful. This is directed by Sam Raimi. It's uh, sort of a prequel to the classic MGM 1939 Wizard of Oz film. We've got James Franco as the Wizard of Oz before he becomes the Wizard of Oz and how he got to Oz and how he became the Wizard and so on. We've also got Myla Kunis, Michelle Williams, and Rachel Weiss as some of the witches that he encounters. So, I mean, John, what do you think about this movie? Do you... Uh, have any uh, opinions on it? Yeah, I think the movie looks pretty interesting. Uh, the visually, it looks really beautiful, and so I'm I'm, I'm optimistic about the the movie uh, in that regard. And and I and I like a lot of the actors. I think James Franco is generally quite good, and and I'm not as familiar with the other with the female leads, but I mean I've seen them in other stuff, and and I, I know they're capable of good performances. 
I, I think it looks like it could be fun. Uh, I think it may have some issues as far as uh, sort of being anti-feminist in, in, a, in a way, because it's like, uh, here's all these strong women who seem to be saying, oh, what we need is a white man from America to save us. Um, so, so they might have some issues there, but I mean, I think it's a little early to say from just the trailer and, uh, uh, we'll see how it plays out, but I, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the trailer. Uh, although I I can't say that I've, uh, that Sam Raimi has the best track record uh, for me. So why don't you say, John, what is Sam Raimi's track record? And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he directed the three, the, the Spider-Man trilogy as, as the trailer proclaims, which, uh, I don't know that that would been a selling point in my mind, but. Uh, you know, this is these are the ones with Toby Toby McGuire starring as Spider Man, uh, and and I know a lot of people really liked the first one. I I didn't really think much of any of them. Um, I I never even saw the third one because I'd heard it was so bad. And so he also did the Evil Dead movies, and uh, he directed some other movies like The Quick and the Dead, A Simple Plan, um, and the the recent Drag Me to Hell movie. Uh, I didn't see that one, but uh the simple plan a simple plan was good i thought um i remembered liking quick and the dead kind of but that i saw that a long time ago so it's harder to say but yeah i mean he's been sort of hit or miss with me um as a director yeah i mean i didn't particularly like drag me to hell or the spider he he's sort of his movies are all kind of goofy and that works for evil dead but doesn't really work for me with a lot of the other stuff he does so um but i don't know what do you what do you think doug about uh oz the great and powerful well, I'm definitely curious, and I think John took the words right out of my mouth when he said cautiously optimistic, because that's how I feel, because I think everybody really is dying for this new Oz movie to be good, because, you know, the 1939 classic film, it's like one of the gold standards of American film, it's one of the best-known movies worldwide, and I think people have been waiting for that definitive new Oz movie. There have been a couple of other Oz movies, but nothing that really resonates the same way. So I, I'm very hopeful. I think John also raised a really great point about the potential sexist issues. Just, I agree, it's too early to say, but if that does arise, that would be really unfortunate just because, you know, L. Frank Baum's wife uh, she was very much a part of the feminist movement all the way back in the early 1900s. And that informed a lot of L. Frank Baum's writing, especially in The Marvelous Land of Oz, which was the second Oz book he wrote. So, you know, if there are sexist issues in this new film, it would really almost be spitting on the memory of Oz in literature. I really want this movie to be good, but I, I'm definitely less than <laughs> optimistic. <laughs> I would describe myself as apprehensive based on the trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this really looks to me like another Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I think Gregor Maguire sort of expressed a similar sentiment in the interview. And I didn't like that at all. I watched a a, a panel from Comic-Con where Sam Raimi came out and some of the actors and talked about the movie. And the first words out of his mouth were, this is a movie based on the work of Frank L. Baum. <laughs> and uh, that did not inspire a lot of confidence in me. Oh, really? He did that? I mean, maybe it was just a slip of the tongue, but <laughs> there's just such a history of Hollywood adapting books and not bothering to read them and stuff that mm-hmm. I'm just very maybe hypersensitive to stuff like that. 
Yeah, one thing I thought was really cool though was the way they sort of gave a hat tip to the to the to the 1939 uh, adaptation of Wizard of Oz, where they uh, they sort of start the the trailer starts off in black and white, and then as they get to Oz, they they turn it to color. I thought I thought that was a nice effect, especially since the movie is so vibrant uh, visually. Uh, well, and it's interesting. It came up also in this panel that they don't have the rights to the original mm-hmm. to the to the 39 MGM film, so they can't use the ruby slippers, for example. Mm-hmm. So any uh tips of the hat like that have to be <laughs> you know Slide. non-infringing of a non-infringing yeah. nature yeah i guess i should explain that the um the ruby slippers were invented for the movie in the book they're silver slippers so nobody except you have to get the rights from mgm to use the the ruby slippers yeah i mean that was uh, i mean we could talk we'll talk about the anthology later but i mean that was one of the things that we had to consider as editors too is that because the books are public domain, you're allowed to do whatever you want with the books. But um, but we had to steer clear of of anything that was specifically from the movie. So, for instance, we had to make sure that all instances in the anthology were silver slippers instead of ruby slippers or some other kind of slippers. Since since the whole point of our book was to reimagine Oz, they you know they could have done something different. But you know if they used actual ruby slippers, that wouldn't be good because then that seems like it's based on the movie instead of the books. I guess one thing also is that. Apparently, the um, Tin Man, Scarecrow, and Lion won't be in this movie. I'm actually sort of uh, glad that they're actually doing something different and not not taking the easy way, uh, you know, to playing on on the nostalgia and everything. Uh, my sense is no, but do you guys happen to know definitively whether this new movie is going to have any musical numbers like the original classic movie did? I would guess not from the trailer. Uh, there's a scene in the tr- in one of the trailers I saw that had the a bunch of the munchkins come out, and but they were sort of there was like three of them stacked up on each other's shoulders, and but they and so they had sort of like these big overcoats on, so that at first they looked like they were giants, but then it turns out that they were they were just mu- the munchkins, and and so uh, the the wizard says to them something like, "So you guys can fight, right?" And that's and that's when they open their coats, and it reveals that they're just munchkins and not giants. And, uh, and they said, "Well, no, but we can sing." And it sound and it and it kind of looks like they they were about to sing, but then um, but then he like cuts them off and says, "No, guys, take five. So like I'm guessing that they're gonna start to sing, and and it's gonna be like silly or awful or something, and then he's just gonna cut them off. Or that that would be my guess, but I mean, who knows? Uh, so like so like a little nod to the original movie. Yeah, but we're not gonna go there, right? Which might it might be for the best because unless you're gonna almost guarantee to be delivering classic songs uh, sang in a classic manner that resonate in the American consciousness, they're going to fall flat for the viewer. Well, probably that part, John, was the part of the trailer that made me the most nervous, where uh-huh. there's like the big guys, like, no, it's actually Munchkin stacked on top of each other. He's like, take five guys. I'm like, oh boy, I got I got such a bad feeling about this. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't my favorite part by any stretch. Um, actually, is that is that even an anachronism um, or something? Because uh, like, when, when, when does the phrase take five come from? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it, it might be fine. I, I you know, I, I hope that they would uh, check that sort of thing, but who knows? All right, cool. So, I mean, I think it's it's somewhat surprising to me that Disney's going back to Oz after their last foray <laughs> into the Oz world, which was back in the eighties. This movie, Return to Oz, uh, which was a a big flop. I guess we've all seen this fairly recently. I guess just John, sort of overall thoughts on Return to Oz. Uh, you know, I mean, this is one of those movies that if I wasn't watching it for 
for the purpose of talking about it in the podcast, I certainly would not have finished it. I, I would have given up pretty soon on it. Um, although I'm actually kind of glad that I did suffer through it because there was some cool stuff in it. Um, overall, it's, I, I mean, I didn't enjoy it really at all. And, and I had to go get my computer so that I could, you know, distract myself from it so that I could sort of suffer through it and, you know, take my mind off of, <laughs> so I wasn't just watching the movie by itself. I had other things to occupy myself, but, um, I mean, there was there was a lot of cool things in it that I was glad I I, uh, persevered so that I could actually see them. Like it was cool to see TikTok and um, and some of the other characters from the other Oz books that we hadn't seen previously. Um, And, you know, you can say say what you will about how they're depicted in the in the movie. You know, regardless of that, I just it was kind of cool to see them. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised that it was the as huge a flop as it seems to have been. Um, because I actually looked up the I looked up the director, and he basically has never done anything else. And and I mean, it must have been such a colossal flop. I mean, if he can't even get any work out any, anymore um, after doing that. Well, actually, I mean, there's a documentary on YouTube called "Return to Oz: The Joy That Got Away," which mm-hmm. I mean, kind of tells you all you need to know about the movie, <laughs> right? That that's the title. Yeah. But they said that yeah, that this that this guy never worked as a director again. But he did become a fairly successful, I think, film editor. And he actually mm. won an Oscar for editing on The English Patient or something. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's fair to say that the movie was a big enough financial failure that it affected his ability to find other work as a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, another person, apparently, who was involved with this as a producer, I think, was Gary Kurtz, who had been the producer for Luke, George Lucas's early movies, um, American Graffiti and then Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And they parted ways um, because Kurtz felt like Lucas was just making the movies amusement park rides for kids with no stories, and he didn't want to be invo- involved with them anymore. Um, <laughs> and so, so he came and he got involved with Return to Oz, and apparently he he went bankrupt. Uh, you know, the the movie oh. was enough of a failure that he actually had to file for bankruptcy um, subsequently. It's kind of ironic that he left uh, the employee of George Lucas. Uh, with that in mind and then he went and made this movie well i mean i mean I th- it does have a story to it though that, and, you know, yeah well I, I think i mean my reaction to this movie is that it's kind of unbelievable boredom punctuated every once in a while by like oh that's kind of effed up and cool mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and i do i mean this movie is not it's not like a typical hollywood movie where it fails because they're trying to please everybody and not do anything interesting mm-hmm. or risky this is kind of a, it's a movie that fails, but it fails in a really, I think, interesting, mm-hmm. uh, risky kind of way. Actually, you know, one thing that really surprised me about it was how dark it is. Uh, and, and I think a large part of the failure of the movie is that it's kind of too much of a kid's movie in large parts of the movie to please adults. And yet it's too terrifying for actual kids to watch for most of it, I would think. Yeah. I mean, this movie even creeped me out. I mean, uh, I mean, it starts out Dorothy. You know, she can't stop thinking about Oz and everyone thinks she's crazy. And so they send her to this demented uh, sanitarium to get electroshock therapy. And then she travels back to Oz to find everything's all messed up and creepy. And she gets, uh, you know, these these guys named Wheelers chase after her, which are kind of like intensely disturbing clowns with uh, wheels for hands and feet. And then uh, she ends up with this woman who uh, changes head, who has keeps all her heads in cabinets and changes heads. Um, Doug, what's that character? That must, that's from the books, right? What's that character's name? Yeah, that's Princess Languadir. Okay, and, and Doug, so what, this, this movie is supposedly based on, I think, the second and third Oz books, right? What, uh, what elements, um, from the movie uh, are drawn from those books? 
Well, I mean, a lot of those characters uh, were introduced in the books, those two books, for the first time. Uh, TikTok, Ozma, who was actually introduced in the second book as, uh, spoiler alert for those that don't want to know, but uh, it was actually started off as a boy named Tip in the Marvelous Land of Oz, and by the end got changed into Ozma. The Wheelers were from the third book also uh the gump was in the second book uh jack pumpkinhead i was really disappointed with what they did with jack pumpkinhead in the movie because he was in the marvelous land of oz which might be my favorite of the oz books mostly because of jack i i found that character to be hysterical because you do get glimpses of like the tin man and uh the scarecrow in this sequel. And, you know, you also have Dorothy in this sequel, The Return to Oz, but it's not the characters we remembered. And I, I think for some people that might be really hard to digest. Just they look different, particularly Tim Man and Scarecrow. And, you know, Dorothy is like a little girl, uh, instead of like Judy Garland. And yeah, that's actually more accurate to the books. But, you know, the film is kind of its own thing. It was really jarring. Yeah. So, well, b- because it takes elements from the 39 MGM feature uh, film you know like the ruby slippers which they actually had to pay, apparently they had to pay a lot of money to to use them in in this movie but then yeah but then other things you know dorothy is 11 rather than 16 and and all this stuff so it's it's sort of this weird in between state where it's kind of familiar but strange and it comes off as being stranger than it would otherwise well i think it was really ambitious for what it was trying to do at that time and just in terms of the special effects and everything like if they if they made that movie now like I could see it probably doing well just because the special effects would have all looked awesome versus them looking, you know, fairly cheesy. I mean, I don't know how it came off back in the day in, in 85 when this came out. But I mean, like there's a lot of stop motion animation in there and stuff that doesn't look all that great. Actually, John, speaking of the special effects, I was the whole movie. I was like, how are they doing TikTok? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I can't imagine somebody fitting in there, but I can't imagine it's mechanical back then. Could it have been a little person inside? Well, you, no, know. in the documentary, they actually said it's a contortionist who's upside down. So the person's oh, wow. arms are in TikTok's legs and it's sort of they're walking around on their hands, basically, with the rest of their body like curled up in an incredibly small space. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, Doug, actually, speaking of TikTok, I mean, he was one of my favorite parts of, of the movie, probably my favorite part of the movie all, overall. Um, could you, you want to just talk a little bit about you know, how he compares to how he was depicted in the books. I think it was fairly similar. Uh, you know, just this mechanical creature who you kind of think of the Tin Man at first because, oh, look, they're both metal. But, you know, the Tin Man used to actually be a real person where, uh, you know, and he became the Tin Man through magic, whereas TikTok became tiktok because he was built and you know he doesn't have any feelings or anything like that but you can kind of tell that he has a a good i can't you can't say a good heart but i guess good programming (laughs) he's good he's good natured yeah you know you had to wind up tiktok in both books stuff like that tiktok was a lot of fun um yeah you know bomb had a really prolific imagination and I, i think like the next two books really prove that you know he had a lot of stuff that he could throw into this world of Oz and like the surrounding countries because he gave you Jack Pumpkinhead, he gave you TikTok, he gave you Belina, who 
I thought was actually kind of a silly character the first time I read about Bolina, but she grew on me. That's the uh, hand? Gave you- yes, the talking oh, hand. Oh, God, and- that hand. That was so annoying. No. <laughs> let, let me clarify to say that when I say Bolina grew on me, I mean Bolina grew on me in the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in the movie. Yeah, no, in the movie, she's so annoying. That's what I was talking oh, about. Oh, that the voiceover was oh, just yeah, it was so, so terrible. <laughs> so, Doug, where does the in the movie we find out at the end that hens' eggs kill gnomes? Uh, is that it? Like, is that explained at all in the book? It just really seems totally random in the movie. It's not explained in the books, but just when you read the books, there's just like this weird logic to Oz where you don't question it and it just makes sense because when you go to the land of Oz, anything is possible. And, you know, Bomb is writing the story for kids. So, you know, the scarecrow throws the eggs at the gnomes and the gnome king in the third book and, oh, turns out eggs is their secret weakness. And, okay, that's a little weird, but yeah, I'll buy it. You know, this is Oz. Why not? But that just, it really didn't translate to film at all. It just seemed, when you watch it on film, it just seemed preposterous. And the gnomes in this movie are like rock golems or something. And that's not, that's not the same as the book, right? Not as I remember it. I mean, they definitely mine the rocks. But, you know, again, I would have to go back and check. I haven't, the only book I've read more than once is The Wizard of Oz, the, the original one. But as I recall, the gnomes, they mine the rocks and, you know, they, they live among the rocks and they even like, in one of the later books, they mine a tunnel beneath the deadly desert so that they can invade Emerald City. But I have no recollection of them actually being rock golems. So they just decided, hey, let's do this for Return of Oz. And it seems like the big motivation was so they can do what probably seemed like cool claymation with the Gnome King back in 1985. Yeah, but the whole with the Gnome King, the whole ending sequence, that just was interminable for me. And there's this thing where Dorothy just has to, they, the characters have to try to guess, you know, which, which of objects their friends have been turned into. And I just don't think it works in a story when, you know, the characters are, are, are guessing like that. I, th- I think the characters need to be doing something clever. And I, I really did like the part earlier, earlier in the movie where Dorothy has this idea to create the, the gump, right? Where to build, to take all this junk and put it together into a flying creature and then use this magical dust to bring it to life. You know, in, in that case, Dorothy's uh, being a an active character and being clever and stuff. And I think that works a lot better. Well, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that plotting was not L. Frank Baum's strong suit. This was, you know, his his strengths were world building, uh, creation, and, you know, just the language was kind of simplistic for adults. But when you read the books to kids... The language was perfect for kids. So, you know, these like, get the guesses and stuff like that. Yeah, you're willing, you're kind of willing to, you know, go along with that in the book when you read it, just because you're like, okay, that's fine. But yeah, again, you, you translate this to a movie and it just, it falls really flat. I just had one other thing to say about TikTok uh, before we moved on, but uh, and I mean, this sort of applies to the books as well, but I was actually kind of thinking that it's surprising to me that I don't, that we don't hear uh, TikTok being mentioned in, in relation to the origins of steampunk more often. Like, I mean, I don't know that I've ever actually heard him mentioned. And, and it just seems like, I mean, that's like a really, really early 
precursor to the whole steampunk movement. I mean, he, I mean, he's not steam powered, but I mean, it's clock punk. You know, it's a, it's a wind up robot. So why why can't TikTok wind himself up? I didn't understand that. Maybe it's like the S spot on his back. I don't know. <laughs> that seems like a big design flaw, though. Or I mean, maybe it's uh, to control, you know, to keep the robots from uh, uprising or something that the humans have to wind them every once in a while to make sure that there's always uh, uh, some human cooperation with the robots continuing to uh, function. Yeah, actually, there's a I, I published a story in fantasy uh, called uh, uh, Lessons from a Clockwork Queen, and and it sort of incorporates that same idea where uh, you know there's there's these clockwork people who who can't wind themselves, uh, you know, and that's sort of the implication is that that's why. Uh, but I mean, I think that's an interesting idea. All right, cool. So let's talk about some of the other Oz adaptations that have been done. I think it's kind of a checkered <laughs> history, but uh, let's see, Doug, you. Uh, you just said you went back and rewatched The Wiz. Uh, I haven't seen that. What What do I need to know about The Wiz? Well, it was originally a Broadway show, and the Broadway show is actually really well received. I think it ran for about four years or so, and it fused The Wizard of Oz with African American culture. I think they actually advertised the Broadway show as you know, a soul musical or something along those lines. It had like a lot of soul music for the musical numbers. Um, I've never seen the Broadway show, but I did see the movie. And let's say that I love the concepts that they threw into the movie, but the movie itself felt like a bit of a mess. It felt like they were trying to cram a Broadway musical into a movie format. You know, like the original Wizard of Oz movie, it has a few musical numbers sprinkled in throughout, that's fine. But The Wiz, it has musical number after musical number after musical number, and it was just better suited for the stage. And I think they actually rewrote a lot of the dialogue, and they actually changed a lot of the songs. Um, but, you know, it, it was really cool concepts. Like, uh, I love one thing they did early on where when Dorothy first crashes into this, it's like a city setting, an urban setting for Oz. When she first crashes there, and they kill that version of the Wicked Witch. She frees the munchkins, but the munchkins were actually trapped in the walls, like the brick walls, as graffiti art. You know, the witch had imprisoned them like that, and Dorothy freed them, and they're like coming out of the walls because they're no longer graffiti art. And I thought that was a really cool concept. So, you know, there were, there were interesting concepts throughout. You know, like the Tin Man was kind of almost, he almost looked like a walking pinball machine. Uh, stuff like that. It, it was really cool. And you get to see young Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow. That was kind of interesting. He actually, he did a pretty good job. And he did a little bit of breakdancing on the Yellow Brick Road, which is kind of funny. I thought Dorothy, though, they got Diana Ross, which, okay, she's got... You know, she's got the, the chops for the singing, no question, but she was just too old for that role she, uh, when they cast her. She was 33 at the time, and, she, you know, just the way Dorothy is portrayed in that movie, and it's fine that you want to portray Dorothy as very immature and, you know, not willing to start a life of her own. It seemed like something that's better suited to someone that's a teenager or maybe like in their early 20s as opposed to someone that was 33. It just came off as a little 
schmaltzy or comical. So, you know, I, I read up on it a little bit out of curiosity, just like, what were they thinking casting her in this role? So she actually pushed really hard and she was initially rejected for it because she was too old. But, you know, Diana Ross has some connections and ultimately she made it happen. So she wanted that role and that's why she got it. But it was just a bad casting choice. So was that before when they cast Michael Jackson in that? Was that before or after Billie Jean? Uh, well, the movie came out seventy eight. So bef- when did? Must have been in the eighties, I would think. Um, it just I think so. Just in because in the music video for Billie Jean, he's kind of walking along this path, and the squares are lighting up under his feet. That just kind of makes me think of the Yellow Brick Road somehow. Mm. So yeah, that that might have been an allusion to it. You know, that was probably fresher in people's minds back then because I don't know. Uh, the movie today, it almost seems like a forgotten movie. You don't hear too many people talking about The Wiz anymore. Yeah, I just wanted to throw something in there. Speaking of forgotten movies, uh, you know, we, we've mentioned a couple times, or at least Doug has, has referred to the original, the quote-unquote original um, Wizard of Oz movie. But, of course, there actually were, uh, there was at least uh, one, I think there was two different adaptations of Wizard of Oz before the 1939 Wizard of Oz, which is the what we keep calling the original. But, I mean, what we mean is that it's the classic one that everyone knows and loves uh, from from years ago. It, it's the it's the iconic Wizard of Oz movie. Um, nobody remembers the other ones, uh, which is uh, why I just wanted to throw, throw that out there. We know. We know that <laughs> No, no, you... You're 100% right, and I've been saying the original, but the word I should really be using is the definitive. Yeah. You know, when people, t- when people talk about the Wizard of Oz in film, everyone automatically goes to the 1939 one first, because like I was saying before, that's the gold standard. Right. So yes, there, there were some films before that. There was also like a Broadway production of the Wizard of Oz all the way back in like 1902, 1903. But you know, that's not the ones that people really think of when it comes to Broadway anymore. It's, Probably not even the Wiz anymore. I think it's safe to say that people think of Wicked now. Oh, sure. When they think of Wizard of Oz on Broadway. Yeah, definitely. And that's yeah, and like, the, and that's the gold standard for Wizard of Oz on Broadway now. Right. I, I just wanted to throw that out there so to stave off any um, <laughs> anyone who wanted to to yell at us for for not knowing our history. It, it was kind of funny that uh, in one of these Q and As with Sam Raimi, someone someone in the audience asked in a semi hostile fashion, <laughs> "Why does why does Hollywood only make remakes now?" You know, with sort of the, you know, you're like, oh, you're doing the Wizard of Oz again, so original. But Hollywood doing remakes is not a new thing. I mean, I think people are just more aware of it. But if you go back, I mean, pretty much all these classic movies that you think of as being original are actually like the fourth or fifth time Hollywood mm-hmm. had made that movie that they go back to the silent era and so on, you know. Uh, all right. So, Doug, uh, you said that you, you sort of took one for the team on this because <laughs> you said you were going to go watch Tin Man. So, uh, tell us about Tin Man. All right. So, yes, I did check out Tin Man. It was a miniseries that was put out by the Sci-Fi Channel, uh, starring Zoe Deschanel as Dorothy. And I got an hour into it, and I was looking forward to it. I had heard some pretty good things about it. And I got about an hour in, and I just had to give up. It just... It, it felt to me like they were trying too hard. I mean, you take the Wizard of Oz, whether it's in film or the books, you know, and it's it's definitely a land of imagination. And Baum was willing to put all sorts of crazy things into his books. And that's great. That's all part of Oz. But, you know, there was like a consistency to how he introduced stuff. You know, it's like, okay, this kind of, here's this land in this book, and it has these kind of creatures. 
And, you know, even like, even in Oz Reimagined, there's all sorts of different things that are in that book, in the way people reimagine Oz in the anthology that John and I did. But it's from story to story to story. It's like, okay, here's, here's the crazy stuff for this story. And with Tin Man, it's just like, there was all in the first hour, it's like, there was magic. There was science fiction. There was steampunk. There was like this noirish mentality. There was psychic abilities. It was just like, it was like they were throwing the kitchen sink at you. And it's just like, you know, can I get a chance to just absorb this? Because there's too much. And I really just thought that they got carried away. And there was like, it didn't really feel like the world had any internal consistency to me. What actually is the setup? I mean, uh, let's see. Uh, you know, Dorothy is in the Midwest. Uh, Except Zoe, Zoe Deschanel is like 30, right? So is, is she 30 in the show or is she supposed to be younger? Yeah, no, she was a waitress. So, I mean, she was working and stuff. So, you know, they were definitely like saying Dorothy is older in this version. You know, like Judy Garland in the, in the definitive version, she, you know, she was like, she's not a little kid, but there was, there were some definite childlike qualities to her performance. They weren't really giving us that so much in this version. And I don't know. I guess there's this wicked witch equivalent. Um, I forget her name, Arkavina or something like that. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. But she sent some people over to Dorothy's side in America to kill Dorothy, it seemed like, because she was some kind of threat. And then, like, her aunt and uncle, you know, throw her into this twister. And I guess the twister came with these people that came from Oz to destroy her. Oh, that reminds me. They called the Oz the OZ, <laughs> which... Drove me crazy. It sounded like a bad high school, you know, drama, like 90210 and oh, let's, let's do the OZ. So I, I couldn't stand that. Uh, so a lot of the little things got on my, got on my nerves. And then, you know, you find out that like, uh, Dorothy's aunt and uncle were actually just robots that were programmed to raise her with love and affection. And the Tin Man is like this guy that was a policeman that was like trapped in like this metal encasing. And I, at first I thought, Oh, so that's why he's a tin man. But no, tin men are called cops and they're going not to Emerald city, but to central city. And that was another thing that just, I, I thought that was so ridiculous. It's like, all right, if you're going to name rename Emerald city, which I think is such a bad move because it's such an iconic part of Oz. Can you at least come up with something a little more original than central city? Okay, so, so uh, Doug, what you're saying makes no sense whatsoever. Because it's kind of – that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is the sh – the, sh the show just actually makes no sense whatsoever, right? It's not like you're explaining it wrong. I mean, if there is an internal logic of some sort, but they didn't do a good job of conveying it. Like I was saying, they threw in too much stuff. And it is just like, yeah, I have no real feel for this world. You know, it was actually it was actually nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Miniseries. And thank God it didn't win. I was just going to say, I'm probably going to get some flack for this, just because I know there are people that do like it. I, I just thought it was terrible. Mm -hmm. And look, we did an anthology called Oz Reimagined. I try and give a lot of leeway to anyone that's reimagining Oz, and, and I just couldn't swallow this mm -hmm. one, no matter how I looked at it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really sad just because, I mean, it does sound like there's a lot of cool elements to it, but, you know, just hearing how it, it, it sort of all comes together in a big mess makes me want to just avoid it because, uh, that, it just seems like it would be sad to, uh, see any of the cool things about it and then just see them, you know, sort of wasted. Well, I, I think it's interesting that there's the Wizard, the, the 1939 MGM Wizard of Oz, which may be the most popular movie of all time. Uh, one of the guys in this doc, in this, uh, Return to Oz documentary makes this point that, if you're on a bus sitting next to some random person, the movie that you can be most sure that you've both seen is The Wizard of Oz. I've been thinking about that. I, 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 I'm not sure if that's true, but uh, it certainly could be true. Well, I'll be honest. When you just said that, I nodded my head like, I think that's a fair point. Um, and I think part of that might be you can easily make an argument that Oz is the most famous American fantasy there is. You know, just like the other fantasies that have a level of popularity that rivals Oz, they were not American. You know, it's uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien, that's out of England, uh, Narnia, out of England, Harry Potter, out of England, and so on and so on. Okay, but what makes Oz American? I mean, it was written by an American author, but there are plenty of books that were written by American authors that still have more of an English feel to them, right? Like Game of Thrones, say, or whatever. But it does seem that there's something intrinsically American about Oz. And I'm just wondering, can anyone put their finger on what makes Oz feel more like America? Well, two things that pop into my mind immediately are Dorothy has a lot of sass in the books. And I don't know, that feels very American to me. Like, making this little girl have all this sass and just like the way she talks, like even like just the way she pronounces some of her words in the books that it feels very American. I think the other big thing is the book, the original book was published in 1900. So that means, you know, Bob was working on it in the 1890s. Who who knows how long it took him to write the first book. I personally don't, but he was clearly working on it in the 1890s. And that was, you know, 1889. That's like when, like, there was the, the land rush on Oklahoma. And that's more or less, you could say, the end of the frontier era in America, in like the U.S. And, but it's recent enough that I think it's still very much informed American thinking. And, you know, here's Dorothy, uh, a, an American child, and there's no more frontiers. And here she is going to another frontier. Well, I mean, it seems, I mean, one thing maybe is that the the heroes are all sort of lower middle class. I mean, you know, uh, nobody, there's not an Aragorn in this party, right? Nobody's a, a king or a secret princess or something. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you've got sort of a, a scare, you know, basically a farmer, a laborer, and, you know, kind of a, I don't know, a, a misfit animal kind of guy, you know. I also think there's just something, I mean, obviously America is not the only country that has hucksters, mm-hmm. but just the fact that Oz is, that the, that the land is ruled over by this fraud, uh, that, that just seems very American to me somehow, that this idea that you have these characters and they set off in this quest, basically for, for spiritual fulfillment almost, you know, that the scarecrow and the lion and the woodsman are each looking for something, they're, they're trying to improve themselves reach a new level of uh, enlightenment almost. Mm -hmm. And what they end up with is a guy who just gives them some worthless trinket 
and <laughs> and go and they go away happy basically. And that seems very American to me that you know it's it's like a country of people who spirituality is very important to them that they sailed across oceans and stuff to be able to express their spiritual values, but then always end up with just consumer junk instead. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and actually, uh, when you were talking about the the, the party being, uh, you know, sort of various commoner types, um, the, and the, the the thing is too that they that they go to Oz, where there's the ruler of Oz, and they basically, you know, end up um, having to battle him, right? I mean, in, in a way. Um, and so it's just, it's kind of like, it's kind of like overthrowing a king in a way, you know? Another thing that occurs to me is the idea of like the American dream. Like that's like something that, you know, it got built up over time and maybe it wasn't really present when, you know, Baum wrote the book, you know, like, you know, the people were just finished in the past few years, like really settling major swaths of new land and it was still a very rural country overall, very, very much farm oriented. But, you know, I think like maybe the movie actually helped advance this idea, you know, that came out like 1939. So, you know, World War II was just starting. Um, but post World War II, I think, you know, America became a superpower. And the, I think the idea of the American dream really took root where you know, you come to America and anything is possible. And Oz is a place where anything is possible. You know, so you're going to Oz, uh, Oz can, to Emerald City, I'm sorry. And Emerald City can almost feel like America. When we get there, anything is possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and they told, uh, I mean, immigrants famously believed that America was so prosperous that the streets were paved with gold. And maybe the yellow brick road is, uh, you know, inspired by that somehow. I also saw on actually on Gregory Maguire's Facebook page, apparently in the town where Baum went to college, there there actually was a yellow brick. You know, the the main road or something was actually made out of yellow bricks. Um, so, I mean, who knows where those things come from ultimately? But I, I think there all has always been some association with the yellow brick road with some sort of golden road or something like that. Maybe. I mean. Is, are we going to talk about political allegories here, or are we going to leave that part? Are we going to avoid that altogether? Because that's another theory with the yellow brick road that you know didn't like come on the scene until I think like the 1960s. But there were a bunch of people that started saying, "Oh, Wizard of Oz is just one big political allegory, and the yellow brick road is just something that stands for the gold standard, and the silver shoes are the silver standard, and the Emerald City stands for the greenback, and on and on and on." So. Yeah, there's, it's really hard to pinpoint. It's, I think it's probably impossible to pinpoint what the yellow, what Frank Baum intended when he created the Yellow Brick Road, but clearly it has a lot of resonance. All right, well, let's talk about some of our fond memories of Oz. I guess, Doug, I wanted to, you, you mentioned that you were, uh, you tried, you were in two stage productions of The Wizard of Oz and you never got to be, who was it? You never got to be the wizard or? Uh, yeah, fourth grade play, we were staging The Wizard of Oz, and the teacher held tryouts, and I wanted to be the Scarecrow, and I watched the movie, I rehearsed the song, I felt good, and I didn't get the role, I went to Mandy Sherwood, I was really mad, and I ended up getting stuck with The Wizard of Oz, which was, you know, all things considered, a pretty good role, I could have just been an Oz, an Ozonian, uh, or a Munchkin, uh, but you know, I 
got to be the wizard, but I was very bitter. And then years later, I actually got into musical theater. This was before I like got into writing and editing, and I thought I wanted to be an actor. And I was in an, I tried out for another production, The Wizard of Oz. I think I was like in ninth or tenth grade at the time. And I'm like, all right, this is a chance to redress old wrongs. You know, I'm going to try out for this. Damn it. I'm going to be the scarecrow. And just in a cruel twist of irony, I ended up getting the Wizard of Oz again. So, you know, for a little while, I was embittered toward the whole franchise, but that quickly went away. So wait, so why, why um, did these people, like, why did they keep casting other people as the scarecrow over you? Like, were they just better scarecrows or was there? Not in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you think there was some, uh, Oh, the fix was in, yeah, Dave. Yeah. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> no, I don't know. It, it, it's just the way it goes. Um, Wait, what What but, grade uh, was the... I think it's funny. You still remember the name of the person who beat you out for the the scarecrow back in fourth grade or whatever it was. That was bitter. <laughs> <laughs> was it literally fourth grade? It was literally fourth grade. <laughs> Do you know... What, you guys didn't... You guys didn't have school plays? Uh, we did. We just... Uh, I don't remember... I don't remember the name of anyone in my fourth grade class, I don't think, let alone somebody like... Uh, well, maybe you should look up like, Mandy Sherwood on Facebook. Maybe, you know, they have some horrible eh. life or something and you would feel better that, you know, if you would become the scarecrow, maybe horrible things would happen to you. No, no, I'll be the, I'll be the bigger person and I, I'm just going to assume that Mandy has a great, great life. Well, I'll tell you, we actually read the Wizard of Oz novel when I was, I think, in third grade. And the part I loved the best about it was that when they go to the Emerald City in the book, they get these glasses with sort of green cellophane over them because they're told that the Emerald City, the city is so glows so brightly. This is the way I remember it anyway, that it glows so brightly that you have to wear these glasses to protect your eyes. And then the glasses just really have green cellophane in them. So it's not actually an Emerald City at all. It's just everything looks green because you're wearing these green glasses. And I, I just thought that was really, uh, I, I always like those sorts of, uh, you know, fraud kind of things. And I was always really disappointed in the movie that they make it an actual Emerald City, which makes no sense because the wizard is a fraud. So how could he actually have a real Emerald City? You know, though, in the books, I guess Bomb didn't like go back and reread the books because over time, you know, like they stopped wearing the glasses and the city would still be Emerald. So there were some inconsistencies with Bomb's stuff. So um, actually, speaking of, uh, speaking of reading the books, uh, you know, in preparation for doing the anthology, I, I went to, you know, I went to start rereading the books. And, and so I, I went and grabbed, uh, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz off of Project Gutenberg, you know, cause it's just a public domain book. So I can just grab it, uh, grab the ebook for free, put it on my iPad. And, you know, so I was reading it. And, and I was like, you know, I was, I was, I was really enjoying it. I was in the middle of, middle of the book. And, and then all of a sudden, like, I got to a chapter and I was like, wait, what, what the heck just happened here? Like, I don't, like it's like I and I I went back a couple pages and like I reread and I'm like wait there's like like some like somebody somehow put a different section of a different book in the middle of this Project Gutenberg edition hmm. of Wizard of Oz and do you know what book it was uh, I can't remember what it was it was something from Mark Twain I believe uh, I don't remember which book uh, it, it was like Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer or something um and uh, and it was just it was so bizarre because I was like I was very confused and uh, and then eventually I figured out what happened and, and then um I you know and I and I went and I had to track down a different uh, version of the book but it's just kind of bizarre it's like it was on it was on Project Gutenberg. 
Spielberg. So, I mean, it's not like I, I got it from some, you know, dubious source. It was like, that's supposed to be, you know, just like a legitimate place to get the book. Um, and actually, it is really frustrating. Like, if you want to, if you want to get a book, uh, like a, a physical book edition of The Wizard of Oz, or, you know, I should say The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, because that's the name of the book. Um, it's really easy. You know, there's plenty of nice editions you can get and it's fine. But, um, if you want to get an ebook, it's like so hard to actually find like a legitimate ebook that isn't just it isn't just some guy who decided to take the text that he found online somewhere and and resell it on Amazon or something like that. There's because there's like dozens of different editions of it and it's just really frustrating. Because uh, after I had that experience, I would have gladly went and just bought like like well what what's what's the you know what's the standard edition that you would buy if you just want to buy it these days. I was like I'll get it you know I, I'd be happy to. Um and then but then I I just I gave up. I couldn't I couldn't find one that was like oh this is obviously a legit purchase. Wait so you mean there's not supposed to be zombies in the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> yeah. Only, only in our book. Actually, no, there's no zombies, but. Although Seanan, uh, I think she made a joke about that earlier. Seanan McGuire is one of our authors, and like, she has a pseudonym of Mira Grant. And as Mira Grant, she does these zombie thriller books. And when we first invited her, you know, she's like, oh, that sounds great. Uh, do you want me to write this as, you know, Seanan or Mira? And John said something like, well, I guess that's the difference between fairy tale Oz and zombie Oz. So, we, had we said Miro, we might have gotten Zombias. And actually, uh, Shonen ended up, uh, she had so much fun writing her story for our anthology, she's actually going to be writing a trilogy of Oz novels now. I think in the same universe, but I'm not 100% positive, but either way, it's pretty awesome that, you know, if that trilogy comes to be, because I think she's still just like in the plotting out phase. Pretty, pretty cool if it comes to be. Well, John and I will be very proud to have played a small part in that. All right, well, I mean, since you guys brought up the book, why don't we just uh, talk about that? Um, I mean, in an earlier episode, you described how you came up with the idea and stuff. And so how did you go from having the idea for this anthology and knowing that you were going to work together to having the book actually come out? So once we once we came up with the idea and decided to do the book, uh, you know, we, we did the usual process of putting together the proposal and recruiting authors and whatnot. And, um, since, you know, Doug doesn't have an agent, so, uh, we just used my agent to shop it around to publishers. And, uh, we actually, we had a lot of trouble placing it. But fortunately, uh, uh, 47 North, which is Amazon's publishing division, um, they were interested in doing the book. And so, uh, so we sold it to them. And, uh, it was, a, it was a little difficult, uh, to put the anthology together, largely because we had, like, a really short timeline because they wanted the anthology to come out rightly. Um, they wanted it to come out, uh, in time with the movie, uh, with the new Oz, the Great and Powerful movie, because, you know, interest in Oz would be, you know, would, would be at a, at a peak at this time. And so, um, so the book is coming out on February 26th, uh, just about a week before the movie. And, uh, but that, you know, that just did, did uh, uh, put us on a bit of a time crunch because, uh, you know, authors need a certain amount of time to write, work on their stories. And, and, you know, if you, if anybody's late or whatever, it can, it can really throw things off. But, um, so that was a bit of a challenge. But one of the interesting things about working with uh, 47 North because of their affiliation with Amazon is that 47 North is actually publishing all of the stories as individual ebooks as well. So you can buy the the full book uh, as a trade paperback or you can buy the full book as an ebook. Uh, but then you can also buy each of the individual stories as just a standalone ebook. Um, and so each story has an illustration and that doubles as its cover. And uh, so, I mean, I just thought that was really interesting. I'll also add, like, we got Gregory Maguire to write the forward, which we're very happy about. But if you want the Gregory Maguire forward, that's only available in the physical copy. 
Well, and and the well, it's in the Kindle ebook too. It's just it's just, it's only in the full anthology. How did you guys get Gregory McGuire to write the intro? I mean, did you know him at all, or did you just cold email him? And yeah, we just cold emailed him. I mean, initially we we uh, I mean we first we tried to get him to write a story, but he he didn't have time or was not inclined to do so. Uh, probably given that he's written enough Oz uh, for to last the rest of his life, I imagine. Um, but then uh, we just asked him if he would do the forward instead, and so we were we were very happy to to get him to do it. Yeah, one of the fun things about doing the book though was. Uh, trying to figure out what sort of reimaginings, uh, everyone could do. And so, cause like when we were putting the other proposal and we were inviting authors, we sort of had to come up with some, uh, general ideas. It's like, oh, well, you know, as Doug was saying earlier, you could do a steampunk Oz or fairy tale Oz or urban fantasy Oz, that kind of thing. And it was just, it was just fun to imagine all those different things and then to have, to give the authors that general description and then to see all of the, you know, wildly different things that they came up with. Well, yeah. So, I mean, what what were some of the things that people came up with? Like, what what are some of the more interesting or unusual takes that people came up with? Well, I'm not going to say who was better than who because I don't want to show favorites, and you know, you know, everyone likes something different. But I'll I'll go for variety. Like, uh, let's take Orson Scott Card. He actually did a story about how L. Frank Baum's son goes on these adventures, and that. Uh, about like it was almost like pre-Oz you know you could like see the makings of like what the Oz universe would become but it wasn't really Oz so 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 the boy has these real life adventures and then he's going to tell these to his dad who's going to write them as the Wizard of Oz essentially and then uh we got like the boy detective of Oz from Tad Williams he wrote a story from his Otherland uh, series, which was like four big doorstopper books. And it's like this big virtual reality system. And in the original series, there was an Oz simulation that was very corrupt. So he returns to the Oz simulation there. Um, we also have uh, a science fiction story from David Farland called Dead Blue. So, you know, here's Oz going completely science fiction instead. Uh, then we have like something that's set in the real world called One Flew Over the Rainbow by Robin Wasserman. And it's pretty much an allusion to, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And she intertwines those two things really well. And then like Jeff Ford, he wrote a story called A Meeting in Oz. And that one is, it, that's the, I would say that's the darkest story. Um, I guess we should mention that, you know, we put a parental advisory warning at the very beginning of the book because some of these stories are perfect for kids. But, you know, like something like Jeff Ford's story, it's a it's a brilliant piece, but you don't want to read that story to your kids. I mean, one thing in The Wizard of Oz that I always kind of that I always kind of wondered about is that why if the witch can be melted by water, why would she bother mopping her floors? You know, wouldn't it be better just to like, ah, I'm going to keep the floors dirty. Who cares? And a couple of the stories in this, they actually kind of make fun of that or, you know, have some interesting twist on that. Like, was it the, um, which of the stories was it where Dorothy, it's sort of more of a science fiction Oz and Dorothy actually electrocutes the, the witch by jamming an electrical cable onto the wet floor and that electrocutes the witch. And I think that's dead blue and it's referenced in passing. And that's by David Farland. I would say probably the oddest story that we have in the book is, um, is Jane Yolen's story, uh, which is called Blown Away. Uh, largely because it's, uh, it's so 
non-fantastical. Uh, and, and, th- and that just makes it strange in the context of Oz because in that story, uh, it basically just takes place in Kansas and, uh, and there's a, there's an emerald circus instead of an emerald city. And, uh, it's just a really interesting, uh, reimagining. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, uh, uh, so Toto, uh, this isn't much of a, this is a little tiny spoiler, but I mean, I think it's revealed in the first like two pages or something, but like Toto is, uh, is actually killed and he's stuffed and taxidermied and put on a little cart with wheels. And so like Dorothy walks around with him <laughs> as her pet, <laughs> but he's stuffed in, uh, in taxidermied, um, throughout the whole story. So, uh, it's just like, it was like a very, very, very strange story, but I mean, it's a uh, really, uh, it's really cool. A really cool invention, uh, reinvention. I mean, some of the things you guys talked about in, in the introduction really struck me, such as that in the movie, the monkeys are referred to as flying monkeys, and in the books, they're referred to as winged monkeys. So that's almost a shibboleth that you can use if someone, you know, someone refers to them as flying monkeys, you know, uh, you're, you're more of a movie person than a book person. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, like I was talking about earlier, we had to really watch like a hawk, uh, in the stories to make sure that nobody referred to flying monkeys versus winged monkeys, um, and, you know, ruby slippers and silver slippers and whatnot. Um, because, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure we didn't, uh, run afoul of any copyright issues. I mean, did um, you have to, did somebody turn in a story and you had to change something because they, it had slipped yeah. by them? Oh, yeah, that happened more than once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like people were, people, uh, get the movie and the book conflated in their mind. I think, even though they're obviously trying to, you know, they're basing it on the book. It's it's really hard to keep them all all the terms and everything separate, uh, especially since Bomb was so, so sort of played so fast and loose with uh with with the rules of, of of everything. How we, I mean, even just the capitalization that was the other thing that drove us nuts. Oh God, <laughs> yeah, there was no rhyme or reason to it, and it, uh, it gave us fits. There's no other way to put it. Like just even something just as simple as which, like is which capitalized or not? I don't even remember now because we went back and forth <laughs> on it so much. So I, I know I remember if it was <laughs> talking a, if he was talking about a specific witch, like the witch, yeah. then then you could capitalize it. But if he was just talking about a witch in general, mm-hmm. then we would leave it in lowercase. It, right. it was things like this, like the minutiae. Picture that for like fifty different things at least, and that's what we had to try and keep consistent. And then our copy editors helped us out with that a lot too. How much um, of an effort did you make to make the content of the stories consistent with the Oz books, which I understand are not even all that consistent among mm-hmm. each other? I mean, how, was that an issue? Well, not really, because the whole idea was supposed to be that people were reimagining Oz. So, like, for instance, uh, Ken Liu's story, which uh, we didn't describe yet, but I mean, it takes place in Shanghai. And so it's like it basically bears uh, very little resemblance to Bomb's Oz because it's completely reimagined. And to have, and so like in, in, in Ken's story, even though it takes place in Shanghai, there's a character who is obviously Dorothy and, and so on and so forth. You know, there's, there's analogs in all of the stories that any of the, any of the stories that are very different, uh, there's always something about it that makes it feel like Oz. So, I mean, that was really what we had to, to enforce where, uh, as opposed to trying to keep it, you know, consistent with canon or whatever. We, we just talked about the capitalizations, but it wasn't just like keeping the capitalizations consistent and like, figuring out what Bomb was doing, but then the authors, like, one person would capitalize something here, whereas another person would not capitalize this exact same term in their story. And we thought it would be best if we did our best. There were, there were certain exceptions for various reasons, but we thought it would be best if we did our best to keep the capitalizations consistent throughout the stories. How did, how did you pick the authors? I mean, 
did you say did you just say oh this person seems like they would be good at oz or i mean did you know people who knew oz well or well part, that was part of the fun of hunting people down because you know oz is something where everyone knows oz whether you read the books as a kid or you watched the movies as a kid you know everybody knows oz and it seems like Either everyone loves Oz, or if you don't love Oz, it's because you were terrified of the winged monkeys <laughs> as a kid. I, I guess I should say the flying monkeys. Because <laughs> we, we got a couple of authors who actually passed for like that specific reason that they said, you know, either like the scarecrow used to scare the bejesus out of me, or the flying monkeys scared me, so I couldn't use them. But, you know, otherwise it was like, we, we, pr- I think John and I pretty much considered just about anyone fair game because everyone knows Oz. I mean, speaking of the flying monkey is just one of my major, like when I just, when I think of the movie, really the first thing I think of is that, you know, my mom is really, uh, she doesn't like to watch anything scary or violent or anything like that. And her test of a movie is she says, you know, if, if you're like, oh mom, you should watch this movie. And she's like, well, is it scary? Is it as scary as the flying monkeys? in Wizard of Oz. Hmm. And if you say yes, then she won't watch it. Yeah, <laughs> that's like her top <laughs> point. It has to be below it has to be less scary than that for her to yeah. even consider it. Um actually, you know, speaking of the flying monkeys, uh uh there's a there's a like I listen to metal and there's a metal band I like called uh Protest the Hero and they have a song called I believe it's Heretics and Killers. But um so I just wa- like I don't watch a lot of music videos, but I happen to to check out this music video of theirs and the music video is entirely about the flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz, but they're not in Oz anymore. Now they're in the real world, and they're all unemployed because they can't get jobs. Because why would you hire a flying monkey to be a barista or whatever, you know? And uh, and it's just it's like really bizarre and funny. Like I kind of love it. It doesn't really make any sense to me, like in relation to the song, but um, I just I, it's it's a really cool thing to like watch if you're if you're interested in flying monkeys at all. Or uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah. This I, is I definitely one of the strongest flying monkey music videos I've ever seen. It is. It is, yes. <laughs> you should stay tuned for our next episode where we're going to cover all of the different Flying Monkey music videos we've seen. <laughs> it's going to be a two-part. It's going to be a two-part episode. <laughs> well, yeah, it has to be. All right. So, yeah, and there's one other Oz adaptation that's uh, just recently announced called Red Brick Road. I guess, Doug, you did a little research on this, right? What do we know about Red Brick Road? Uh, yeah, I looked it up a little bit. I mean, there's really not much about it at this point. But I guess, like, the pitch is, like, Wizard of Oz meets Game of Thrones, which, that's a little bizarre, but, you know, I guess Game of Thrones is hot these days. And uh, Red Brick Road, I guess that's an allusion to the classic movie where, you know, when the Munchkins tell Dorothy, follow the yellow brick road, and she starts following that spiral in the movie. And the very beginning, there's actually a yellow brick road, and spiraling out, there's a red brick road. And Dorothy follows the yellow brick road. And I've actually even seen memes, you know, online about where does that red brick road lead to? So, you know, I, I guess this is like, you know, I'm extrapolating, but I guess this is what happens when you follow the red brick road. Apparently, it's supposed to be a continuation of the Wizard of Oz story, and it's from Warner Brothers, so I guess it's a continuation of the movie story, but it's Game of Thrones fashion. You know, it has violence, it has politics, it has intrigue, and well, if it's Game of Thrones fashion, if it makes it to cable, I imagine it'll have sex and blood, too, but we'll have to wait and see, you know, 
where it ends up, you know, whether it's NBC or HBO can make a a big difference. Yeah, you know, despite knowing about the Red Brick Road, uh, or you know, the actual Red Brick Road from the from the movie, I I assume that the that the title is actually just referencing red as in blood, and so given that they're comparing it to Wizard of Oz meets Game of Thrones, they're like saying like, oh, this is going to be a bloody version of of Wizard of Oz, and uh, so. I, that sounds pretty cool to me, to be honest. And I mean, I, I would, I mean, the, that's a good pitch to me. I mean, I kind of, you know, it's, it's really easy to get cynical about all of these this meets that pitches. Um, especially since we've seen so many terrible ones. But I mean, I don't know. It sounds like it could be fun. I, I don't know anything about any of these, uh, producers that they list in the, in the article that I read. But, um, yeah, actually, if you want to, um, if you want to check out some of the concept art, um, io9 has an article about it and, uh, you can just go to io9 and, and, and look for, uh, Red Brick Road. Uh, but there's a couple, there's a couple of, uh, um, couple of, uh, con- uh, pieces of concept art you can check out to see the sort of darker vision. Uh, they, they have a picture of the Tin Man that looks pretty badass. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would check it out. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm probably a little less cautiously optimistic than I am for the upcoming movie, but, um, we'll see. Well, and it mentions Dorothy fighting with a sword, right? Wasn't that in that article? Yeah. I mean, which I mean, I, you can never go wrong with sword fights, as far as I'm concerned. Although, actually, mm-hmm. they did go wrong. They did give Alice <laughs> armor and a sword in that out Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland movie, and that was kind of a WTF moment for me in that one. So, mm-hmm. but if they did it right, uh, I don't know. I could see that being cool. All right. Well, cool. So then, just the last thing I wanted to mention is that one of my favorite video game series growing up, right, is the Ultima series. And in that game, in in, in Ultima Four, not only are you supposed to kill monsters and collect treasure and stuff, but you're also supposed to become a good person. And so the creator, Richard Garriott, you know, he needed to put together some set of values that he could advance as the goal in this game. And so he just spent a really long time, you know, reading philosophy and drawing up lists of things that people consider to be virtues and values. And at the end of this entire process, he sort of realized that pretty much everything that people consider good is either truth, love, courage, or some combination of those things. And that's where the system of eight virtues in the game comes from. And so he said he had just come up with that, and then he read The Wizard of Oz and realized that the Scarecrow wants wisdom, the Tin Man wants compassion, and the Lion wants courage, and that uh, L. Frank Baum had basically come up with, had maybe come to the same conclusion that truth, love, and courage are... uh, the most important things in life. I think one of the reasons that The Wizard of Oz does strike a chord with people is because, whether it was intentional or not, and I don't know, that there there is a lot of uh, fundamental truth in that book. Yeah, I think all of that plus the notion of home, all those all those virtues plus uh, you know, and what Dorothy wants is to get home, and and yeah, I think I think all of those things plus that. See, so Doug, any last words on The Wizard of Oz? Uh, well, I'll give you two things. One, uh, I know some people sometimes talk about like how in book six of the series, you know, uh, that Bomb completely changes his original message because, uh, Dorothy brings Uncle Henry and Aunt M to Oz with her to live there. And it's like, but she wants to go home all along. But to, I, I, I thought the message was fine because she loved Oz and do you really think she wants to go back to the gray prairies, which is how Baum described it, and, you know, the boring farm? No, she wants to go back because 
It was the people that made Oz, that made Kansas home for her. So she just, you know, she combined her two homes into one. So I don't think like Baum ever lost the message of home because it, home is where the heart is. And now her heart is, would be completely in Oz because everyone she loves in Oz is there and the people she loves in Kansas are with her there too. Also, if you want to learn more about our Oz Reimagined anthology, uh, we do have a website that you can check out. It has author interviews. It has the latest news. And it also has an art gallery with all of the illustrations, including the cover. So it's an extension of John's website. So it's just at johnjosephadams.com slash oz-reimagined. Or if you Google Oz Reimagined and John Joseph Adams, I'm sure you'll find it. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Doug, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks again for having me. Always fun to be back. And thanks again to Gregory McGuire for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to Gary Bridgman for writing us a terrific review on iTunes. He says, quote, They help to educate the public on how SF is not just pulp genre material, but the right hemisphere of science and technology's consciousness, not to mention its conscience. I really love that. So thank you, Gary. If you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, definitely check out Escape Pod and The Drabblecast. My short story, They Go Bump, about a squad of invisible soldiers, appears as episode 382 of Escape Pod, and my story Power Armor, A Love Story, from John's anthology Armored, appears as episode 272 of The Drabblecast. Also, John's about to embark on the book tour for his anthology The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination. The first stop is in Menlo Park, California, just around the corner from Stanford University on February 21st. I'll be at that one too, so if you come, you can meet us both. John will also be visiting a few other cities, including San Francisco and Seattle. For a complete list, visit johnjustfadams.com and click on blog. And if anyone out there wants a free copy of John and Doug's anthology, Oz Reimagined, we have five copies to give away. Just post a message on Twitter that contains both our Twitter handle of @geeksgalaxy and the hashtag Oz Reimagined. We'll randomly select five people and announce their names at the end of our next episode. And please only enter if you have a U.S. mailing address. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.